I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. This week, we're going global. I sat down with Nama Elbegir, senior international correspondent at CNN, who was in town to accept a Polk Award for her reporting on the Libyan slave trade. It was a groundbreaking investigation and an emotionally powerful one. We spent some time talking about the impact of her work and how she deals with the mental and emotional toll it takes. Then in our weekly roundup, we'll dive into Sinclair's takeover of local media and generational divides in newsrooms. But first, here's my conversation with Nema. Uh, Nema. Yes. Not Nima. No. Okay. Trevor Noah screwed that up. Oh, bless him. And he'd been practicing backstage. El Bahir. Uh, Al Bagir. Al Bagir. Yeah. Wait. I, so I watched a couple of clips to see. I was like, okay, well, let me make sure I'm getting this. So Wolf Blitzer was right and Trevor Noah was yes, wrong. Yes, yes. But you know what? Bless him, Wolf, because he's so desperately um, keen to not get it wrong. Every single break, we have this awkward interlude where he um, he just like almost like sings it out. He's like, Nema El Bagir. And then I kind of, I'm standing there just like wanting to die. Yeah. <laughs> So your piece on the slave trade caused outrage around the globe. And in a documentary CNN later produced on the full story, you said you hoped this moment wouldn't pass, that real change would come of the work that you and your team did. Has that happened? I guess the short answer is no. Um, We have seen some movement in terms of the numbers of of, uh, migrants that have been repatriated. So it went from something appalling, like 1,000 a month, to 15,000 just last December. And there is investment in that. But we've also seen three or four meetings at the UN Security Council that have have resulted in in nothing really practical. So there have been minimal changes, but but the reality is almost, in this current political climate, insurmountable, which is, do we want to be part of a world that allows for dignified safe passage that allows for people to find a way to pursue their dreams in a in a meaningful way or do we want to continue to find ways to confine and contain this movement of people because the one thing that we have seen that I think the whole world has seen is that movement of people is not stopping yeah I mean you mentioned the idea of moral complicity at every level and that goes to governments that goes to the actual people involved in trafficking uh these migrants who become slaves what is journalism's role in that to avoid to to not contribute to that moral complicity what's been i think most interesting for me is the level of self-interrogation that uh that i I, i've been going through the language around this and the way in which the language is weaponized Mm -hmm. so every time that we talk about economic migrants, when actually you're talking about someone from Eritrea who's fleeing lifetime conscription into the army, they are by every measure a refugee. And every time we allow, whether it's the UK Prime Minister or the European Union or the President of the United States of America, to talk about people in that way, it's very interesting how othering that language is. Because when you talk about economic migrants, you kind of imagine this plague of people that are coming to take from you and your family and make your life worse in all these unimaginable ways. When actually, when you are talking about people who are risking, who often it's not even a risk, who are knowingly starting a journey that's going to involve rape and enslavement and torture and possibly death, that is no longer an economic migrant. Yeah, you interviewed uh, uh, people that were in the detention centers in Libya, and even having gone through this terrible journey, enslavement for many of them, they said they would do it all over again. 
And you make the point they're not just trying to, you know, escape poverty. They're following their dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, The entire documentary is incredibly moving to watch. I imagine it was also incredibly difficult to report. So what's the emotional, the psychological toll that goes on for you uh, as you report these stories? And are there strategies or coping mechanisms that you've developed? Uh, anger. I think anger's a good one. Um, we, we were just so shocked. And then we were so horrified by the ways in which something pretty clear-cut was being twisted um, very quickly after the piece came out. It was unfortunately within a, a surge of, of fake news rhetoric surrounding CNN. And what was heartbreaking for me is seeing the risks that people had taken to speak to us, and, and not just the people you see on air, our contacts on the ground in Libya, um, the risks that our, our managers and, and the team took, and then to have those risks possibly end up being meaningless because the climate is one in which people find it very easy to disbelieve. Uh, That was a moment that was quite difficult. But then to see that, to see people actually come back from that and go, no, we are, we're better than this. Yeah, you mentioned the climate in which this report came out. And and I don't think that climate has dissipated in terms of the fake news attacks. Um, President Trump, here in the U.S., often directs his ire towards CNN. Um, And even after uh, his Asian trip mentioned watching CNN International (laughs) and not being able to trust it. So beyond anger, what is your, what would be your message to not just him, but the people who share his beliefs that this is fake news, that this is bias, the sort of reporting that's going on at CNN isn't real? I think in a way the current climate has actually forced us to go back to basics and to remind us that the most important thing we can do is show rather than tell. And I hope that that's why this piece had the impact it did because it was very difficult to argue with what you what you were seeing in that moment. You could decide it meant different things. You know, I have so many people who have come back to me and say, well, you know, my sense was that actually these people weren't really being auctioned off as slaves, that perhaps this was, you know, like when you see um, people off to pick fruit, uh, uh, you kind of think, okay, but do you, okay, fine, let's call it whatever you want to call it. Let's say it's not slavery. Let's say it's indentured servitude. Let's say it's people being exploited. Do you, do you think that this is morally acceptable? And the answer, thankfully, is, is no. Um, but I don't know. I I come from a country where um, freedom of press is, I mean, it's not even a dream. It's something so far out of what people can even conceptualize. But I grew up in an environment that that constantly reminded me that that is because we have so much power. Yeah, your parents were journalists, right? My parents are journalists. Yes, yes. My father's newspaper uh, is confiscated. Its printing license is still suspended in Sudan. And so growing up, uh, and he was in and out of exile and in and out of jail. But I think for me, that just was such a, a good lesson in, in the power that we wield. You know, when people want to establish very early on that we are not to be believed and we are not to be trusted, it's because they know that we are capable of changing the climate and the culture and opening people's eyes in really powerful ways. Yeah, and that, that power that comes across in the story is in large part because of what you were able to show. And to get that footage, 
you took risks. And I'm wondering about that calculation, the risk-reward calculation for you, for your crew, for the people that you're interviewing. Well, we always make a point of just checking in with each other. Is everyone okay? It, there's never a point where you can't turn back. And in fact, um, Tony Maddox, the head of CNN, I, that was one of his last conversations with us before we headed out to the auction. He was like, there is never a point of no return. You can always come back. There, no harm, no foul. Um, which obviously only wanted to make, only made us want to do it more because <laughs> you feel like, well, we're being trusted with this. Um, it's it's tough. I don't think there are easy answers. I'm very lucky in that oh, most of the time I'm working with people that I'm close to. So you get a feel for what for what everybody's kind of comfort zone is. And the producer who went with me to the auction is one of my closest friends. She's amazing Palestinian American woman, I should say. I always say girl, but woman, Raja Razik. And, um, you know, we were very in tune with how the other was feeling. And then the same with when we went, when we, when we got on the bus, I was with another producer who's also a very good friend of mine, um, Lillian Leposo. And I think that's what saves you in these situations is the, the bonds that you form are so close, you kind of end up looking out for each other and reading each other. Well, and you mentioned those two pairings that were behind this, you and your producers. They were both female teams. Um, and I know we're way past the Martha Gellhorn era where that was a, an anomaly in foreign reporting. But I wonder if, given your success uh, and your visibility, you feel a responsibility to advocate for, to um, champion women who are interested in doing this sort of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even more so, being Sudanese, I also feel very strongly about the fact that a generation ago in journalism, someone like me would have been a fixer. They would right. not have been the person in front of the camera. They would have been behind the person, possibly even behind the camera. And I think that I take, I hope that I take that responsibility very seriously. So I've asked every international reporter um, that I've spoken with in the last year kind of a similar question about whether there is more difficulty in getting these type of stories that aren't necessarily connected to President Trump, who has become the biggest story in U.S. media on the air. Have you found that in the sort of work that you're doing? Is it harder to get attention to this sort of work? I think it's a yes and no. I think we do less work that isn't Trump related, but the work we do, because by virtue of how strong it needs to be to push through, often the investment and the time and the support that is there is more than whereas before you were kind of having to fill so much air and you were bouncing from story to story. Now I know that my bosses are supportive of me just kind of doing the labor and having the quiet time. And definitely what I've heard from Jeff Zucker has been that this is what he wants. He wants enterprise. He wants investigative. And it doesn't have to have a, a Trump um, relationship or something that even tangentially links it to Trump to make air. I think people are, have an appetite for something that isn't Trump. Right. And in that vein, uh, you just got back from the DRC. So what's next for you? Well, we're hoping that we will be able to put together a piece to go to air on the use of child labor and cobalt mining. And this is with regards to this extraordinary green power revolution and the electric car batteries. And there seems to have been a sense that we all kind of rushed ahead without thinking about the actual impact 
of where these resources are coming from. Where is the cobalt coming from? Who is mining your cobalt? I mean, the resources curse is one of those things that you talk about so often that it almost becomes a truism. But in the Congo, you have the wealth and the riches there has become this extraordinary curse because you have a government that has is now... This isn't my line. It's a very clever line. It's not my line. But the economist memorably described them as being seven years into a five-year term. You have a government that that is refusing the very basics of democracy. You have every single corner of the Congo is inflamed in different types of conflict. And yet this is the place that is completely integral to what should be an ethical green power revolution. So how do you marry these two issues? And, and where is our complicity in that as consumers? What are the questions we should be asking? And this is involving, you mentioned the Green Revolution, but it's companies like Tesla and Daimler Chrysler. Daimler Benz, uh, pretty much every company that you can think of, every big brand name. So Volkswagen uh, is investing heavily in uh, in electric car batteries. Um, Fiat Chrysler, everyone you can think of. So what are the questions that we should be asking and what are the questions they should be asking? And it's it's... It's not things that I'm used to doing. I'm I'm used to much more kind of immediate frontline stuff where the the danger uh, and the difficulty is in just getting there. And when you when you get there, the story kind of tells itself. Whereas this intellectually and physically, because I mean, it took us four days just to get from London to where we needed to be in the Congo, uh, and that's without the intimidation and the harassment of the Congolese officials on the ground. But just intellectually trying to understand the different regulations that are supposed to govern this and supply chain transparency. And most importantly, how do you make television out of something like this? Turning from international coverage to some goings-on here in the U.S., I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, John Alsa. You say that every week. And Alex Neeson. Hey. So viewers who turned into their local news at hundreds of stations around the country last week heard a message from trusted anchors that sounded like this. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble trying to get one-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. Those were anchors at stations owned by Sinclair Broadcasting Group, the nation's largest owner of local news stations, reading a prepared script that was forced upon them by their corporate overlords in Maryland. So this clip, if everyone hasn't seen it, was posted by Deadspin. Um, We'll put it in the show notes. It's pretty disturbing, Orwellian, whatever you want to call it. What were your guys' reactions uh, when this broke over the weekend? Well, I mean, my reaction was similar, I think, to to most other people's uh, in the mainstream media sphere, um, which was of concern mixed with kind of grotesque horror. I mean, you watch this video and it is truly dystopian to hear these people's words uh, layered over each other. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that this is a really big issue and has been for some months, but it hasn't got a great deal of play outside of that mainstream media sphere. I think that people really are quite aware of what Sinclair is and what's going on now in, in the sort of broader public in a way they weren't before. Yeah, the only time we really heard about Sinclair outside of insidery media circles was when John Oliver did a piece about them uh, and their proposed acquisition of Tribune Media, which would give them footholds in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago um, last summer. This past weekend's uh, work by Deadspin and the reaction to it, I think, 
brought wider attention to Sinclair than anything we had seen before. I mean, I think also, um, I mean, sure, maybe now who Sinclair is is kind of uh, becoming more widespread. But I still think, I mean, I think even for some journalists not working in TV, uh, the relationship between a corporate owner like Sinclair and these affiliates that bear these familiar names like ABC and CBS, I think those relationships are not always fully understood in a way that makes this more disturbing. Right. I mean, these are the most trusted people in journalism, right? Your local newsman, your local weatherman. Uh, You know, in Philadelphia growing up, the most famous person on TV was Glenn Hurricane Schwartz, the NBC local affiliates weatherman. These are not somebody at CNN or Fox News or wherever kind of giving you some sort of political pronouncement that you understand comes from uh, a place of partisanship. These are the people that you grow up being comfortable and trusting. Yeah, and I think to go kind of tangentially off what you just said, this starts a couple of, I think, really interesting and textured conversations that we maybe haven't seen so much of in the sort of Trump-obsessed media cycle that we've been living through for goodness knows how long now. At face value, this does look like another Sinclair cries fake news, the mainstream media reacts, Trump tweets in favor of Sinclair, the whole world moves on. But it's not quite that simple. Um, This doesn't actually divide on neat left-right lines. I was at the Financial Times Future of News conference a couple of weeks ago, uh, and when he was asked on one of the panels about big threats facing journalism, Christopher Ruddy said Sinclair, just the kind of apropos nothing. This guy, the CEO of Newsmax Media, prominent and vocal Trump booster, you know, was saying that Sinclair was a big threat. I think it also kind of, at least implicitly, starts um, some kind of conversation about media mergers. That's a huge topic at the moment. There's the AT&T Time Warner thing going on, which has implications for CNN. There's Disney and Fox you know, with the Sinclair Tribune thing, that's another angle on that. And these conversations are very often played in terms of what will the president do in terms of favoring media mergers he likes, breaking up media conglomerates he doesn't. Actually, the conversation should be the president's important, but how much power do we want different media companies, different kind of media plus companies to have? That's a conversation we need to have in more nuanced terms. And hopefully this gets us to start that. Yeah, it goes to the very question of how people get their news. We are certainly guilty of focusing on the big names, the CNN and Fox News on cable, the broadcast networks, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and Washington Post. But the most trusted source of news, again, is your local TV news. And so thinking about who controls that, um, you know, how people get their news is certainly it's, it's a difficult question, right? Because these are like disparate local stations, some under the control of Sinclair, some not, some owned by other big groups. I, I don't know. I, I think it's a hard question to wrap our minds around, which is why these kind of short, concise videos that are dystopian, Orwellian, whatever, really break through. So I think it's important to to think about what sort of the tangible consequences are for local news uh, viewers. Um, There's a couple of older studies um, that look at uh, who news consumers trust. And by and large, despite this rise of uh, kind of ideas about journalists being liars or national media being fake, um, by and large, folks sort of are not talking about their local broadcasters when they are thinking about whether national media is fake. They exclude those folks. They trust those folks. And so that Sinclair, which owns all of these trusted uh, local stations is now forcing their anchors to broadcast this stuff makes that more dangerous because these are the folks that people are likely to trust. 
Um, when people turn national media on uh, and we're talking about Sinclair uh, and saying, hey, this is dangerous, this is bad, they're much more likely to believe the people on their local stations and their local newscasters are saying the opposite. Uh, and so that's really dangerous. Um, a Monmouth University uh, study found that three quarters of respondents believe that national journalists are making stories up. They're running just straight up untruths. Uh, and so I think that this, uh, in the context of Sinclair making this kind of a move, this is really dangerous. Another thing that we've been talking a lot about this week was sparked by a Vanity Fair piece by Joe, Joe Pompeo, who uh, wrote a profile of the New York Times newsroom and specifically the woke civil war at the New York Times, which is what he called it. And Alex is making a face right now. <laughs> but basically what Pompeo finds is that there's a generational divide in the New York Times. And I think this applies to a lot of newsrooms, not just the Times. Um, and the money quote from one of his sources, a Times employee who's in the younger group here, uh, is, quote, I've been feeling a lot lately that the newsroom is split into roughly the old guard category and the young and woke category. And it's easy to feel that the former group doesn't take into account how much the future of the paper is predicated on the talent contained in the latter one. So again, this is happening in more newsrooms than just the Times. And it kind of connects with a conversation we had last week about what is the role of journalism? How does it connect to activism? Um, Alex, you laughed at the, the title of this piece. But what did you think of it? Well, I think we should all stop using the word woke, for one. Um, Fair. We will not use it on the rest of this podcast. <laughs> just beep these out <laughs> every time someone <laughs> says woke. Um, I think uh, there's definitely something to some kind of divide, an old guard, new guard kind of a thing. Um, but I hesitate to entirely frame this divide uh, generationally, or what we really mean is by age when we use that word. I think that that's like a really easy binary to fall into um, and you know, in some cases might be true. Um, but I don't think it's quite as simple as separating people who are asking for things for changes to be done as entirely like younger reporters who are new uh, to the profession versus these sort of veteran uh, folks who've been around for ages. Right. Pompeo does make the point that, you know, it's not a perfect uh, description. It's more of a generalization. He brings up the example of Barry Weiss, who's a millennial opinion columnist there who has drawn the ire of many of this uh, word we're not saying younger group. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also important to really define what we're talking about. Are we talking about coverage or are we talking about you know, newsroom structure. I think in in the piece, Pompeo kind of gets at both of those. And it seems like some of the concerns are about coverage, things with the who's being hired to write on the opinion section, how the Times is restricting folks' activity online on Twitter, uh, and who gets to say what on public forums like Twitter. I also think that there's something to uh, like hiring decisions um, and whether there are any initiatives that are specific to hiring people of color, queer people, women. And those two things, I think, are sort of conflated in a way, that, and I think that they deserve being looked at differently. So managing uh, editor Joe Kahn said that journalism is not about creating safe spaces, and I think what he meant was safe spaces in coverage. Um, I think that you could really intelligently challenge whether or not it's the company's role to create a safe space for its employees, particularly as the Times credits itself as evolving and as a, becoming a more inclusive space. Yeah, I completely agree with Alex's framing of this. I think it's much more about like 
the status quo versus the kind of, and hesitate to use the word insurgents. Clearly, there's a generational overlap, but I think that's the central um, sort of issue we're dealing with here. Um, and look, you know, obviously, some of these New York Times senior editors and managers come from the outside, but a lot of them come up through the ranks at the Times, which, let's not forget, is a pretty middle of the road establishment, uh, family dynasty owned newspaper. Um, you know, you get to climb all the way through the ranks at the Times if you're disruptive, if you have kind of outspoken progressive views. Probably not. Now, I'm not saying that should necessarily map onto coverage. I think that's clearly a much more complicated question. Um, but at the same time, I think saying this is a generational divide is a little bit pat and plays into that kind of millennials versus, you know, baby boomers thing. I also think to come back to the quote from Joe Kahn about the safe space thing. Yeah, I agree with Alex's interpretation of it. But let's be clear here. It's not like the Times Old Guard is defending these kind of cherished yet totally totally kind of reasonable for people of that age shibboleths. I think a lot of what they're doing is hiring people who like are not particularly hot on the critical thinking front to write provocative opinion columns. Like there were three columns the other week saying basically that young people in colleges in colleges hate free speech. Do they need three columns saying that kind of 1980s view in one week? And, you know, at the same time, they say they can't really find a Bernie supporter or a Trump supporter to regularly write with a level of critical rigor. I think that kind of defies belief. There's a lot more to this than just old versus young folks. How much of this tension that's being described, and again, it goes beyond the Times newsroom to other large institutions as well, is in reaction to Donald Trump's election? Or how much do you think um, this is due to other factors? Um, I think... Certainly that Donald Trump is president matters. Um, and I think this is mentioned in the piece that the, that reality brings a sort of urgency to how people at the Times and in other newsrooms are discussing these. Um, but I don't really buy the suggestion that if Hillary Clinton had won or if there were anyone else uh, in office, that these issues wouldn't have sort of uh, fizzled to the top eventually, particularly the stuff that has to do with um, there was talk about like microaggressions in newsrooms, um, about uh, interactions between senior and junior staff. Um, I don't think that those are new conversations. Those are conversations that have been happen been happening uh, in newsrooms that happened throughout the Obama administration. Um, and perhaps they're a little bit louder uh, because Donald Trump is president, but I'm not convinced that those wouldn't have become uh, sort of top tier issues. I think part of this is that the Times is engaged in a process of trying to become more diverse. And when you bring in diverse voices to the newsroom, um, you're going to have to deal with some upheaval. And that's not diversity just in race and gender. It's diversity in where people are coming from, right? It used to be that you went to work for a small newspaper, then a regional one, and then you maybe got your shot at the New York Times. Now they're hiring people from BuzzFeed or from Gawker or from any number of different places around the internet where those old newspaper rules don't apply. Um, and I think if they do this right, it makes the paper much more interesting. And that might mean some tensions along the way. I think tension is good. Productive. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Thanks to Nema El-Bagir for speaking with me earlier and to my colleagues, Alex and John. Always great to have you. Please check out all the great work we've got up on CJR.org and we'll see you next week.